Good morning. Uh, the last couple weeks here, we've talked about some pretty important topics specific to the life of Crossview Church, right? Those five markers of a healthy church. And then last week, our new mission statement and strategy. Does anyone remember the new mission statement? Right? Leading people in a growing relationship with Jesus. It's an exciting time around here, right, as we refocus and reorient on what the church is all about. Well, as Dan walked through our mission statement last week, he said something that stuck with me. There is so much confusion about what it means to follow Jesus. There is so much confusion about what it means to follow Jesus. And he was correct, of course, right? There is so much confusion about what it means to follow Jesus. There are different denominations. What's that about? Different local church bodies, different groups and kind of beliefs within those church bodies. And then add to the mix what broader culture says it means to follow Jesus. And you can end up in some pretty weird places as we wrestle with that question and the confusion of what it means to follow Jesus. Well, I'm excited this morning to be kicking off a new series called The Glorious Gospel, The Five Solas. In this series, we're going to uh, dig into and bring some clarity around that confusion about what it means to follow Jesus. And to bring that clarity, we're going to look at some foundational truths called the five solas. Five statements that were born out of the Protestant Reformation 504 years ago. So here's what our time together this morning will look like. First, we're going to do a little background work and talk about the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther. Uh, and then we'll talk about all five of those solas that you see up there for a few minutes to get the big picture. And finally, we'll zero in on sola scriptura this morning, the idea of scripture alone. As we begin, I want to preface this first message and probably this uh, whole series by telling you that these five sermons may be a bit more teachy than preachy while we're working through these, but uh, my hope and prayer is that your hearts and minds will be challenged and encouraged as we dive deep together uh, and that ultimately your affections for God will grow. So, that being said, uh, we'll start with some background in Martin Luther and the Reformation. So, as you may know, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Many think that Martin Luther was trying to start a movement, the, the thing that we call the Protestant movement or the Protestant Reformation, but he wasn't trying to start that. He posted these 95 theses on the church to try and urge the Roman Catholic Church back towards biblical truth and purity of biblical worship. He had sincere concerns about how the Roman Catholic Church, his own home church, was practicing Christianity. One of his main concerns revolved around the sale of indulgences. You may have heard of these, but if you haven't, uh, indulgences are the idea that forgiveness can be sold by the church. If you pay some money, your sins can be forgiven. Or, perhaps more tempting, if you pay some money, the time that your loved ones spend in purgatory can be shortened. When you and I hear that, right, our spidey senses kind of tingle and we think, ah, that doesn't quite sound like something that the Bible teaches about forgiveness of sin. Something is off. But for context, during the time of Martin Luther, the Bible was really only available in Latin. 
which was not the common language, and so only the most educated people of the day could understand it. It would be like if I got up here this morning and gave a whole sermon in Latin. You guys would have no idea what was going on. That was the case for people in the day. So when people showed up for Mass, they had no idea what the priest was saying. In fact, in many instances, the priests themselves had very little idea what they were talking about as they simply memorized the Latin words for that day's Mass and didn't really have much of a clue about what they were teaching. Well, in Luther's view, the gospel of Jesus Christ was under attack. So, having knowledge of Latin and the conviction of God in his heart, he went to the castle church at Wittenberg with 95 statements urging the church towards purity of religious practice and the hope of the gospel, as spelled out in the words of Scripture. His intention was not to split the church, but to refine it. 540 years later, uh, we can see how that played out, right? The Roman Catholic Church ultimately rejected Luther's call toward purity, and he somewhat accidentally inspired the Protestant Reformation, this group of people who rejected certain unbiblical doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church in order to pursue a relationship with the Lord in a way that they deemed more biblical. If you're interested in learning more about the Reformation and uh, its ins and outs, I'd encourage you to check out this book called The Unquenchable Flame, Discovering the Heart of the Reformation. So if the Reformation is interesting to you, highly recommend that book. You can get a lot more information. It's not super high level like a seminary read or anything like that. It's very accessible and easy to understand, and uh, I think you would be encouraged in your uh, pursuit of understanding the Reformation more. So, what does all that have to do with us? Well, the EFCA, you may, not, you may know, you may not, is part of the Protestant movement. Sometimes we think that Protestant is synonymous with Lutheran, but that's not the case at all. Protestant just means that we protested against the Roman Catholic Church and instead follow the principles of the Reformation. So Baptists and Lutherans and Anglicans and Presbyterians and Methodists and Evangelical Free and more, we're all Protestants. We're all born out of this Protestant Reformation. And so the Protestant Reformation matters deeply to us. It's our theological heritage. Well, out of the confusion that Luther identified surrounding what it meant to follow Jesus and how one could be saved, right? Is it by grace through faith or is it by paying some indulgences? Out of that confusion, five statements were born that still anchor us today, both broadly as Protestants in all those denominations I mentioned and more specifically in the EFCA and even more focused. These five statements anchor us as Crossview Church. We refer to these five statements, as I said, as the five solas. The five solas. And it's not an overstatement to say that if we reject any one of these five statements, we're rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. To reject any one of these five statements is to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if that's the case, it's probably pretty important that we spend some time talking about them. So, What are the five solas? Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solus Christus, and Solo Deo Gloria. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and glory to God alone. According to Scripture alone, we are saved through faith alone, by grace alone, 
in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. One more time. According to Scripture alone, we are saved through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. You may have seen these statements before or heard that phrase before, or you may not have. I personally didn't encounter the five solas very much until I got to seminary, and I've been going to churches since I was five years old. It took a long time for me to really uh, wrestle with these, but now I've got them hanging in my office here at Crossview. They have a way of, once you wrestle with them and work through them and think through them, they have a way of grabbing a hold of you, and I hope that that happens to you over these next five weeks. In any event, whether these doctrines are brand new to you or you're a seasoned vet, as I said, my hope is that as we see uh, each of these statements, we'll understand that they're critical to our understanding of the gospel because each is deeply rooted in Scripture. These aren't pulled out of thin air as something that the church has decided or that Martin Luther decided that we need to believe. Rather, these are deeply rooted in Scripture. And as a result, if we claim to follow Jesus we must affirm these five statements if we're going to correctly follow him. All right, with that background and summary in mind, let's spend the rest of our time on the specifics of sola scriptura. We're starting here with sola scriptura because if we don't affirm, as we'll see, the authority of scripture in our lives, then the rest of the the other four statements fall apart anyway. All five, all the next four of these statements hinge upon us clinging to the truth of sola scriptura. So as we work through this, first I'm going to unpack at length what sola scriptura means, and then we'll open our Bibles and talk about how we get there. So we're going to sort of do application first, and then uh, the understanding where we gain that from scripture. I think it'll be helpful to understand the principle first, uh, and then support it. So sola scriptura at its most basic, as we saw, means scripture alone. But as the reformers parsed that out more fully, they said this, scripture alone is our highest authority. Scripture alone is our highest authority. Again, background, you you may remember that the Roman Catholic Church being led by the Pope was making some pretty seriously unbiblical claims, right? Things like buying loved ones out of purgatory or paying with money for sins. So the question became, does the church have authority to make claims that don't show up anywhere in scripture? And then if and when they do make those claims, what do we do? You see what's happening here, right? The, the Roman Catholic church made these decrees and the Bible similarly makes decrees. The, the Catholic church said you can pay for sins with money and uh, the Bible says you're saved by grace through faith. Well, when those things disagree or when the commands of the church can't be shown in the Bible, what's a good Christian to do? Who are we supposed to listen to? Submit to the authority of the church or submit to the authority of the Bible? The answer, of course, is submit to Scripture. We all know that, right? Because Scripture alone is our highest authority. This was important in 1517 and it's important Today, you don't have to look very far to see the authorities that we want to submit to. We feel pulled in so many directions, even within ourselves, right? Feelings and emotions and desires and wants. None of those things are the highest authority in our lives, but they want to be. They desire authority over us. They compete 
for influence, and we often give them power they do not deserve. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, sometimes uh, it's in some pretty big ways, right? Our experience, for example, tells us that love is love, and that, well, maybe they're not hurting anyone anyway if a man and a man or a woman and a woman want to get married. Why should the church not allow for that? We look out and we see a same-sex couple in a deeply loving relationship, and in fact, they may even be happier than some of the heterosexual marriages that we've seen. So, naturally, our experience tells us love is love. There's no reason why the church shouldn't champion any kind of loving relationship, whether heterosexual or homosexual, right? That's, that's what competes inside of us when we look out and see the world. But then, we open Scripture, and we see that the Bible makes the issue of homosexual relationships very clear. It is against God's good design that a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, would enter into a romantic or sexual relationship with one another. So in that case, what do we do? Two competing authorities competing, two authorities competing to lead us, right? Our experience and what the Bible says. They're competing for our surrender. And ultimately, uh, whichever one we follow has some pretty huge implications for our lives. Well, church, as followers of Jesus Christ, even when it goes against every feeling inside of us, we must submit to the word of God. We must submit to the word of God. Similarly, when we look around the world and we see people of all kinds of different faiths, right? Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism and on and on. And we start to think, well, maybe they get part of it correct. And we've got to allow for this idea that we're all looking at the same God, just from a different angle. They have a piece of the truth and they have a piece of the truth and they have a piece and we have a piece. And in the end, we're all trying our best, and that's what really matters. And so how could a loving God not accept these people who grew up in a different part of the world or were exposed to a different religion or who just haven't yet heard the gospel? Surely we're all just looking at God from a different perspective. And in the end, if we try our best, everyone will ultimately be forgiven and go to heaven anyway. That's a narrative that our hearts might want to believe, right? At least on the surface, it sounds really appealing, we find ourselves tempted to believe that, tempted to say, yeah, you do you. And, and if you try your best, God will accept you. God will accept that as enough. Again, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. To be a Christian means we surrender anything else as our highest authority, even our own feelings, and we believe the word of God. One more example, and we'll move on. We just preached through this series on the church, and through that came this strong theme of unity among God's people, right? Our call to love one, another's as, one another as dear brothers and sisters who've been washed by the blood of Christ. Well, the world is telling me that when I interact with people who disagree with me on a variety of issues, right, that we're all well aware of, the world says that can cancel culture prevails. And I should do everything in my power to make sure they know they're wrong and to make sure all my friends know that they're wrong and I'm right. Well, the Bible says that as Christians, no matter what ethnicity or color or preference in politics or worship, we are united by the shed blood 
of Jesus Christ and therefore are to have deep love and affection for one another, even in spite of those differences. And so again, we're faced with a choice. Will we continue to blast each other privately behind closed doors and in conversations with those who are in our own tribes and on social media? Or will we, as Scripture calls for, show love and kindness and patience and a humble heart set on understanding? You see, the question of who or what our highest authority is is profoundly important. If we let our preferences or our favorite politicians or pastors or news outlets be what dictates our theology and our behavior, we're doomed. We're doomed. We're setting ourselves on a course that is blown about as the winds of the day sweep through. And we'll be hypocrites. And ultimately, we will reject God himself. But if we placed our trust on the unchanging and perfect word of God, we will never be led astray. Scripture is our highest authority. Luther and the early reformers, though, didn't completely discount other God-given authorities. Instead, they said, and we say today, that Scripture alone is our highest authority. It's our highest authority. It's important to point out that Scripture is not the only authority that we're called to obey, right? There are all sorts of other God-given authorities, Pastors and shepherds, church elders, church congregations. Did you know that? You guys are an authority. Parents, government officials, on and on, right? All sorts of God-given authorities that Scripture endorses to us as his people. Scripture isn't the only authority. It's the highest authority. So how do we navigate that? How do we navigate the idea of having multiple authorities? Well, in one sense, it's pretty simple, When an authority commands us to do something that Scripture forbids, or an authority forbids us to do something Scripture commands, we submit to Scripture, just like we talked about before. In those cases, we recognize that said authority is operating outside the bounds of their God-given authority, and Scripture as the highest authority, and therefore, we obey Scripture and not the lesser authority. And when those authorities are operating within the bounds of Scripture, we submit to those God-given authorities. And so, your responsibility then as a follower of Jesus is to make sure you know the Scriptures so you can recognize when an authority is operating outside the bounds of what God allows. If we don't know our Bibles, if we don't spend time soaking this in and getting to know God through it, we have no hope of discerning what is right and true and good. Instead, we're left to let what others think of Scripture dictate how we read and interpret and apply and submit. I want to encourage you strongly here. If you're going to take on the identity of Jesus' follower and claim allegiance to the gospel— and therefore affirm sola scriptura, that scripture is the highest authority in your life, how can you do that if you never crack this book open? If you never spend time getting to know God's word? It's okay if it takes you a long time, right? The Christian walk is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Day by day, soak in God's word, and it will change you in ways you can't begin to predict. You'll learn and you'll grow and you'll be challenged and encouraged. And there will be parts in your early readings as you work through that are hard to understand and some that at first pass make no sense 
at all. But as you continue to read, you'll find that understanding the Bible is sort of circular, right? You read this part that you don't really get, but then you read some more and you understand this a little and that sheds light back on this part and that sheds light on the part over here. And as you continue to soak in God's word, you learn and grow more and more and more. And so when you get to stuff that you don't understand and you think, ah, I'm done. I'm not going to read this. The Bible's not for me. Don't do that. Keep trucking on. Keep getting to know God through his word. Keep letting him speak to you through it. It's okay if it takes a long time, but it's not okay to never crack the Bible open, to never turn on an audio Bible if you prefer that. This word of God is the primary way that God has chosen to reveal himself, and it's his means of salvation to the world. And so we must press on and continue to dig into God's word. John Calvin, uh, in his famous work, Institutes of the Christian Faith, says it like this. He says, I exhort those who have reverence for the Lord's word to read it and to impress it diligently upon their memory. If they wish to have, first, a sum of Christian doctrine, and secondly, a way to benefit greatly from reading the Old as well as the New Testament. If anyone cannot understand all the contents, he must not therefore despair, but must ever press onward, hoping that one passage will give him a more familiar explanation of another. In other words, in light of this affirmation that we make as Protestant Christians that Scripture is the highest authority, we need to read it in order to learn sound Christian doctrine, in order to be nurtured, and in order to continue to understand it more deeply. The only way to do those things is to open His Word. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our highest authority. So, how do we get here? How do we get to these truths that I just claimed? Here I just want to make three quick points and then wrap up. First, the scriptures are the very words of God. The scriptures are the very words of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired by God. The word inspired in the original Greek here only shows up at, in this verse, in 2 Timothy 3.16, and it's actually a mashup of two words, God and breath. God and breath. And so, some other translations besides the CSB are probably more helpful when they translate this to say that all Scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. The words in this book, in the Bible, are quite literally directly from the mouth of God himself. Directly from, he breathed them out. But people will say, what about the fact that there are human authors, right? We know that the Bible was written by all kinds of different people. He used, uh, God didn't write them down or suddenly make the scroll of Isaiah, for example, appear, right? He used people. He used Isaiah to write that. Well, Peter addresses this in 2 Peter 1, uh, verses 20 and 21. It says this, Above all, you know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God breathed these words out through the human authors of Scripture. One pastor and author explains that process like this. He says, 
as those godly men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, he superintended their words and used them to produce the scriptures. As a sailing ship is carried along by the wind to reach its final destination, so the human authors of scripture were moved by the Spirit of God to communicate exactly what he desired. In that process, the Spirit filled their minds, souls, and hearts with divine truth, mingling it sovereignly and supernaturally with their unique styles, vocabularies, and experiences, and guiding them to produce a perfect, errorless result. How do we arrive at sola scriptura? Well, first, because we recognize that the scriptures are the very words of God. Second, the word of God, unlike any other literary work in all of history, is living and active. It's living and active. Hebrews 4.12 says this explicitly, For the word of God is living and effective, or living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirits, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, when we read God's word, God's word reads us. It points out our need for a savior. It, along with the work of the spirit, convicts us of sins and assures us of complete redemption and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. If you've been a Christian even for a little while and spent any time in God's Word, you've felt this as you've read, right? You, you come to a text, maybe one that you're even very familiar with, and for whatever reason, on that particular read-through of it, it hits you in a new and powerful way, right? It convicts you, or it encourages you, or sometimes it slaps you right upside your head, right? God's Word is alive. Second Timothy 3 elaborates on this. All scripture is inspired or breathed out by God, as we said, and it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Not only is scripture breathed out by God, but it's alive and it works to make the man of God complete, equipped for every good work. Why do we affirm that scripture is our highest authority because these words are alive. These words are alive. No other book, no matter how compelling we find the stories or logic or reasoning in it, no other book is alive. That's not to say that you can't be helped by reading other things. Of course you can, but this is alive and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Third and finally, we affirm sola scriptura because God tells us that his word will accomplish its purposes. In Isaiah 55, 11, God says this, My word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. God has chosen his word, breathed out, alive, active, to accomplish his will. What he has spoken in this and what he still speaks in this today will be accomplished. As God's people who trust in him to sanctify us and to sustain us and for salvation, we must submit to his word. It will accomplish what it set out to do. There are, of course, dozens more texts throughout scripture and in practice uh, that we could use to affirm sola 
Scriptura, right? And I'm confident that as you crack open your Bible day after day, month after month, and year after year, you will unearth many of them. But for now, these three make the point well enough, right? The Scriptures are the very words of God. They are alive and active, and they will accomplish what God has sent them to do. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our highest authority. Friends, open God's Word. Read it. Love it. Submit to it. By it, be transformed and grow in your affections for Jesus. As you progress through it day after day, you will be dramatically changed. The Bible is an authority unlike any you've ever known. I'm going to read an extended quote from a pastor friend of mine as we wrap up today. And I pray that you're encouraged by it. I wonder if we've thought about just how special this book is. I wonder if you know about the absolute uniqueness of the Bible among every book that has ever been written. It is such a masterpiece beyond human wisdom that it has been translated into more languages, cherished by more people, studied more thoroughly, investigated more carefully, and imitated more frequently than any other book in the entire history of the human race. Even though it was written by dozens of authors over a millennium and a half, it demonstrates more brilliance and cohesion, more unity in diversity, more development of complex themes while preserving the central message than any number of literary geniuses could accomplish if they tried. It's been dissected and attacked, but proven true. It has been maligned and ignored and banned and suppressed, but it has been victorious. It is the best attested book of any type from any time period. We have more manuscript evidence to examine its truth than any other fact in history. It speaks truth to every human who has ever lived. It speaks beauty in a world that desperately yearns for it. It is without parallel. It is too modest to call God's word a masterpiece. It is a miracle. It proves itself to be the word of the only wise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word astounds us. By it, you speak to us, you nourish us, you challenge us, you refine us, you encourage us. We acknowledge that nothing comes close to touching the authority of the scriptures, and yet we struggle to submit to them. Our defiant hearts lead us astray, and we find ourselves being led by other lesser masters. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, continue to cause our hearts to grow in desire to know your word and to know you more through it? We ask that in spite of our rebellion, that you would continue to draw us in. We praise you now for the gospel of Jesus Christ, revealed to us in your word, that has brought us out of death and into life. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.